0: You can head with Katie and uh, we're going to send you to children's worship, spend a little bit of time there. The rest of us, you can grab your Bible. Uh, We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1. So if you uh, haven't been with us over the last few weeks, uh, you're going to take probably a little bit of time to turn there as we've entered into this series in The Minor Prophets. Uh, And I think there was some intentionality behind that. Especially recognizing that that's an area of the scriptures that aren't often preached and that they align very well in the particular time and place we find ourselves culturally uh, where we think things are uh, a little unsettled, a little uncertain and give us some level of frustration as we look upon the cultural horizon that we sit on the precipice of Uh, and maybe it makes sense then to look back and and so what we've done in this whole series is said, okay, let's kind of rewind a couple thousand years and look back at the nation of Israel and recognize some of the things that you see in and among God's people and have always seen in and among his people as a source of reminder and encouragement into the truths of who God is so that we might walk away with that uh, in a deeper understanding of him and and that it would bring about a comfort in our lives. And so uh, we're going to move into Habakkuk to continue that. I want to open us in prayer and then uh, talk about kind of what is going on as we begin Habakkuk because we're going to spend a couple weeks uh, looking at him as a prophet and how that works. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we're just we're grateful for tonight. Um, still, still a weird thing, Saturday night church, and, uh, and yet uh, we recognize that you are our Sabbath rest. You're the Lord, and so uh, when we observe that on Saturday, or when we observe it on Sunday, or if we observe it some other day of the week, that we, we trust that you are still the sovereign God of our lives, and so uh, we get to come together as a reflection of your local church, uh, worshiping you, rejoicing and praising your name, and so I pray that you help us do that well tonight as we study your word. Guide us in it, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, um... Habakkuk chapter 1 is a really fascinating passage in the scriptures uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna really dig into the first half of the first chapter tonight and then uh, we'll move on over the next couple weeks through that book um, but I want to want to kind of help you with what's going on in particular there's really a centerpiece theme in the beginning of Habakkuk 1 uh, that I want to look at because I think it is uh, something that we relate extremely well to in our lives especially if you've lived some time uh, essentially it's this, that Habakkuk is going to look about his life and what's going on around him and experience a level of confusion and even frustration with where God is and isn't working and call out to God in that confusion and frustration. This is why I think this is so vital and so relatable for us because if you've uh, been a Christian for some time and, and I'll not even add that prerequisite. If you've lived some years, it is undoubtedly true that you've encountered different contexts in your life where you can't understand what in the world this could be in a way that God would use this, right? That, that there's tragedy or there's difficulty or there's pain or there's something that is wrong and broken in such a situation that in our finite minds we just simply can't comprehend where God might be at in this. That, that we, even as believers who would trust that God is at work, look at a situation or look at something that seems so broken to us that we go, God, what what are you doing? Where could you be in this? How could this happen? Amen? You been there? I, I, have, a, I have a folder in my desk, in the bottom drawer of my desk, uh, that is simply labeled on the little tab, Funerals. And and so I got in this habit early on in ministry where every time I would uh, officiate a funeral, I'd take the little fold-out card that you get at the funeral, and I just take one with me, and then I would put it in that folder. And so now, uh, over the better part of ten years, that folder has accumulated uh, probably probably about a hundred of these little uh, cards with faces on the front and an obituary inside maybe a couple notes about the service and uh, what it was and who it was and the thing that's so fascinating about it is is they are vastly different if we were to scroll through them you would find some that were people who had lived long and hearty lives well spent to their 90s and their death was kind of a joyous conclusion of a life that was good and then then there's this other piece of the folder. There's, there's these cards that you'll find that are tragedies. I, I, I remember, in fact, I did one today of a 55-year-old man. Four kids, all younger than me. 55 is younger than my father, died, and it was that quick, and they didn't know that it was going to happen at all. Massively tragic. And I, I think about things like that, and you go, what are you doing in this, God? Where, where are you at work in this? A few years ago, I did one for a 49-year-old man who left behind a daughter the same age as my oldest daughter. I remember looking into the eyes of his mom and dad, thinking, God, how are you using this? Right? The, the truth is, if we've experienced life relationally with others, that we too have found ourselves at times looking around at what's going on in and about our lives, trying to understand how God could possibly use sinful and broken and painful things for the sake of His glory, trusting and trying as a Christian to know that this is true, and yet all the while kind of dealing with that tension that we will inevitably always have in this world. In fact, the scriptures are constantly Bringing us back to this question, and here's here's what I want you to understand about this, because while it is seemingly increasingly true lately, uh, if you kind of look about our culture, you see all of this brokenness, you see all of this tragedy, you see all of this sin, you see all of this pain, you go, how how could God possibly be at work in these things? How would God be accomplishing His will as the world continues down this path? Sometimes it just seems spiraling down this path. And yet, as we look back into the Scriptures, and what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk and we've seen throughout the prophets and we see consistently from start to finish in the word of God is that God has always been at work in these times even when those times seem to be spiraling out of control and the consistent refrain of human beings in those times has been God where you at? And, and not only this, but here's, here's where I want you to kind of think about this as we connect it to our lives. At times in the scripture, it's been a sinful thing, someone asking those questions. And at times in the scriptures, it's been a righteous and holy thing asking those questions. Think about I, I'm going to say that again because I feel like that is a thought that is missed upon us oftentimes. That consistently through scripture, you're going to see people asking, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? How could this be of any good to anyone? And sometimes those things are seen as righteous, and sometimes those are seen as sinful. Let me give you some examples because I think this is really vital for us to understand. Uh, Genesis chapter 16, Uh, here's here's what's going on. God has come to a pagan man named Abram. He's called him out in a time and a culture where the most valuable thing a man could have is a male heir descendant that he could leave his legacy onto and abram is getting to be an old man and has no kids god comes to him and says i am going to make from you a great nation you will be a blessing to all nations your descendants will be as many as the stars and then here's what happens years goes by not Not two years, not three years. Uh, By the way, he's like 75 years old when God comes to him. So he's not really in the prime of his childbearing life. I mean, his wife's like his same age, right? And so uh, then what happens is you get to Genesis 15 and Genesis 16, and, and here's what goes on Abraham and Sarah go, God, where are you at? What the heck? How could this possibly be glorifying to you? You said you would do this. And the chapter right before, this is Abraham's conversation with God. I don't have an heir. I'm hitting 90 years old now. And it's getting frustrated. And this Eleazar, this nephew of mine, who is not my heir, is about to inherit all my stuff. And I don't see where you're at. Here's how he responds. Sarah... Uh, Brings forth her maid, Hagar, and says, Here, uh, get pregnant with her. Notably sinful. In fact, uh, it's not till sometime down the road, 10 years later in Genesis, that God is actually going to fulfill his promise, all the while that Abram, in his sinful self-oriented, I can take control, desire, along with Sarah, his wife, walk into a position of I will supersede what God's going to do because I don't understand where God is at. You fast forward a little bit. Let me give you another example. In Exodus chapter 14, here's what happens. God brings forth his plan, just as he said, which is consistent throughout the scriptures. Is as you don't understand what God's doing, as you can't really see how God's at work, God continues to work out exactly what he promised and do it exactly the way he promised. And now God has multiplied and made a great nation out of the descendants of Abraham. He's brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of their slavery, exactly as he promised. And then they stand at the edge of the Red Sea after God has accomplished his will in magnificence, including the killing of the first firstborn of all of Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and out of this, God's people leave and Pharaoh comes after them. I mean, imagine Pharaoh and his army in rage and in bitterness and in anger coming for the people of God. They stand sandwiched between the Red Sea on one side and an impending army on the other side that is going to kill them. And you know what they ask? What are you doing? God, God, What are you doing? How could this possibly be good for you, good for us, good for anyone? It says, as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They became very frightened, and they cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness, why have you dealt with us in this way? bringing us out to Egypt. Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? They cry how could God possibly be at work in this? And then the Bible goes on to talk about God parting the Red Sea and letting his people walk across and closing it in on the Egyptians to bring about their deliverance. That again, you you see even in the sinful motives, the sinful questioning of man, that God is at work in things that they don't understand. And, not only that, here's here's where I think this is really valuable. There's also times, consistently in Scripture, because here's, here's where I think we have a tendency to see that and pull back a little bit. Is, we go, well... In their little faith, people in the scriptures, when they don't understand what God's doing, get frustrated and cry out at Him. And so ultimately, the Christian must be a person then who never asks the question that you would just walk forth in blind faith when you don't understand things and just try harder to think that you can believe and trust and you don't need to ask God, how could this be? What's going on? Why are you doing this? And yet, Consistently in the scriptures, you find people who are asking questions of God with holy motives. In Psalm uh, chapter 13, David, who is consistently doing this in his life, is going to ask God, where is he at? David has one of the most turbulent lives in all of the Bible. He is... uh, Taken from shepherd boy, anointed as king, brought into the household of the current king, sent out of that household after that king tries to murder him multiple times, lives in caves and exiles, is up and down, up and down, up and down, trying to figure out what's going on. And so he says this, Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart, all day how long will my enemy be exalted consider and answer me O oh lord my god enlighten my eyes and i will sleep the sleep of death and the enemy will say i've overcome him my adversaries will rejoice when i am shaken but then get this david's not in the same sin that abraham was David's not in the same sin that the people in exodus were because here's how he follows this up but i have trusted in your loving kindness My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David gives us a model, an example of what it ought to look like that we can ask the Lord in times that we don't understand things and cry out to him and then know that just because you don't understand it doesn't mean you don't trust him, but be honest about it. Come forth and go, I I don't get what this looks like. Look at how Habakkuk does this, okay? Habakkuk chapter 1, here's my point. It's not always wrong to ask God, what are you doing? This is what Habakkuk does. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? That's a bold question to ask God. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Here's here's the beef that Habakkuk has with God. It's that... He's looking around and can't see anything inside of the nation of Judah among God's people that would bring glory to God. And all he sees is perverted justice, injustice, and corruption. And it's seemingly flourishing, and God seems to be doing nothing about it. Seems like something we can relate to a little bit. Let's just, let's just move it forward 2,600 years and go. Here here we are in a culture that seems like more and more injustice is celebrated. It seems like a culture more and more that immorality is celebrated. It seems like a culture more and more that finds itself kind of warring against the Lord with greater and greater zeal. And not only that, but it seems like that behavior is growing to a point where it's rewarded more often than maybe it ever has been in the past. Fair? Fair? I'm gonna cut this part out of the video. Come on! Thanks, Scott. Somebody's somebody's got to help me, right? That where we're at. That's where we're at, right? It's the same place that Habakkuk's at. Let me let me give you some history to kind of help you with what this is. Uh, We've walked through now, chronologically, a couple of these minor prophets. And so we began in Micah. Micah writes uh, just before the Assyrians invade Israel, the northern kingdom. It's about 735 B.C. Uh, right after Micah's going to prophesy, here's, here's what his prophecy is going to be. Uh, Assyria is coming to wipe out the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel who has disobeyed the Lord and lived evil and they were a part of his chosen people. They weren't of the world. They weren't expected to be sinful. They weren't expected to forsake him and yet they had and God had no more patience for it and so I'm raising up these Assyrians. They're going to come in and they're going to wipe the slate clean and it's exactly what happens. It leaves Judah in a place of great turmoil and fear. Not only that, Judah, the two tribes of God that have kind of waffled back and forth between righteousness and idolatry over the past 200 years or so in their sin, now sits in a really peculiar place. They are completely insignificant in the world stage. They're like a tiny dot on the map of a world that is dominated by primarily three empires by the time Habakkuk gets on the scene. There's Egypt which has been sort of the old standing world power south of the people of Israel and e- Egypt's been around for a long time and they're fading they're declining and trying to kind of grasp at any last power they have uh, there's Assyria who has now we looked at last week been already mentioned in Nahum that God is coming for them that they won't also escape the judgment of God as they disobey him and follow into these idols and then in this is a new empire that is growing and building up steam the people of Babylon or the Chaldeans as they're called in the Bible. Now here's here's what's especially interesting. Uh, Assyria prior to Babylon was known as some of the most ruthless uh, and, and fierce people in all of the world and Babylon puts them to shame. They come, and as if the armies of Assyria would be impressive, the armies of Babylon would supersede that by a significant margin. And so they are beginning to grow and expand. And now, in the middle of all of this, you have this tiny nation of Judah who looks like almost nothing but some significant area to be conquered in uh, three major players who are at great tension with one another. And so in this context, Habakkuk gets ready to come on the scene. Now, not only that, here's what's happening in Judah in this time. Uh, following the Samaritans uh, being wiped out, the northern kingdom of Israel comes, Assyria comes in there, besieges, exiles them, destroys everything, Judah's left, it brings about uh, a great deal of reform and turning back to the Lord. Sometimes pain and death has a way of doing that. Amen? So, sometimes something really bad Causes you to, in sobriety, wake up and go, oh, better go back to our creator and think about what that looks like. At the time, a guy named Hezekiah is king over Judah, leads a great reform, opens up the temple. They begin to worship there again, and then he dies. And, and as quickly as that, it turns the page into idolatry and sin. Uh, his son, Manasseh, turns out to be an incredibly evil man, closes the temple back down. He dies. His son, Ammon, takes over the throne and only makes it two years, but it tells us that he's more evil than even his father was. And when he is killed, lo and behold, the throne is given to an eight-year-old boy. His name is Josiah. He's who we named our son after. But here's, think about this, right? Like, I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, uh, so I'm, I'm right in between this. I can't even fathom one of them being the sovereign leader of a nation. Come on, you, if you've had kids, Zoe's laughing. Come on, Zoe. Th- what's Thaddeus? Thaddeus? As king of a country, how's that working out? I feel like it'd be awesome for like three days, right? (laughs) Like there'd be a lot of really good food to eat and we'd probably play a lot of games and then the whole place would burn down. And, and so, uh, yet, God, in his sovereign hand, brings Josiah as king outside of the will of his father and his grandfather into a resurgence and a reform back to following the Lord. And so, under Josiah, a great deal of glorious things happen. In fact, the people of Judah find, while cleaning out the temple, the law. Now, th- th- think about this. This is, this is insanity when we consider how much we neglect the Word of God. For 80 years, nobody had cracked open a scroll that contained the Bible. And it just so happens that one of the priests and the Levites that are cleaning out the temple find the scrolls that are overall, through history, consensus that these are the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And they go, hey, uh, we just found these like in the storage closet. Nobody's using these, nobody's looking at these, nobody's done anything with these, and they mourn and lament. He calls together the whole nation of Judah. There is a great, massive repentance in and among God's people that brings about a reform and a revival rarely ever seen in the history of the world, not just the scriptures here. I mean, imagine imagine if we had in this country at one point in time a complete reversal back to a trust in the Lord in every component of society in law enforcement in the judiciary in the government in uh, our culture right if it, all of it turns back to the Lord and so out of this there's a great deal of excitement there's a great deal of enthusiasm and there's a great deal of godliness and we look and go okay maybe now we're heading somewhere well turns out that just a few years after this here's what Josiah does uh, the remember those kind of fading powers, want to take their army and travel up towards Babylon and Assyria and say, hey, we would like to go through Judah. Probably not asking that politely. The army's there. They're heading through Judah. For whatever reason, Josiah uh, says, no, you ain't coming through our town. He goes out to go to war with them. Now, in that time, kings would often stand at a distance on a chariot, watch the battle. Josiah, in his courageous nature, says, Nuh-uh, if I'm going to make my people fight, I'm going to go fight with them. He goes down into the battle, and he gets killed. And like that, things change. Following Josiah is installed his son, who right away shuts down the reforms and the following of the Lord and turns the people back away from God and into idolatry. And what's amazing is he only lasts for a few months on the throne because Necho, the king of Egypt, on his way back comes and imprisons him and puts his brother on the throne and says, no, 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 you reign. And in this time, things are deteriorating quicker and more violently and nasty than they ever have in the history of Judah. And there's Habakkuk. And here's what he's looking at. Just a minute ago, it seemed like this made sense. I mean, you had raised up this eight-year-old boy who came to know the ways of the Lord and began to lead the country in this. And as quick as it happened, it was over and right back. Right back to sin and death and injustice Everything seemed like I could understand what you were doing, God. And now what? And and God's going to answer Habakkuk, and I think it tells us two things in particular that we ought to really consider and cling to in our lives to this day. Here's, Here's what he says. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days. You would not believe if you were told. Now, if you've been in church some time, this this might be a verse you're familiar with. In fact... Uh, His contemporary, Jeremiah, gives a very similar verse. God's consistent in this communication. Uh, We actually have it on the entrance into the gym above our lobby doors. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You think it along with me? Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And here's the thing the context of this is I am about to wipe out my people and send them into exile at the hand of an evil people in Babylon. Look at how he goes forth to tell Habakkuk this. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places, which are not theirs. They're dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly down like an eagle swooping down to devour All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward and they collect captives like the sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and a heap of rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they'll be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. We're going to look in uh, future weeks that Habakkuk's going to go, Hang on a second. <laughs> uh, I know I asked you where you're at, but I wasn't ready for that answer, nor do I want that answer. And yet, here's what I think God means to teach Habakkuk, and by extension, means to teach us in what He is doing. Here's the first thing. God is sovereign over all things. The, the things that we understand and the things we don't, the things that we like and the things that we think appear evil and backwards, God holds in his sovereignty. It's why Jeremiah is able to say that declaring from the Lord his plans for his people were to prosper them and not to harm them and yet in an earthly sense exactly what was coming for them was harm not prosperity. We would look at that and go, exile and destruction has nothing to do with prospering me, but rather to harm me. And God is looking at it going, no, you have broken my covenant, rejected me and are walking away from me. Therefore, I am correcting this now. I know the plans that I have for you because my glory goes forth in my sovereign hand even when it looks backwards and evil and broken. Here's here's why that matters so much for us. Because I think uh, in this, what God's showing Habakkuk and what he, by extension, means to show us is that you don't have control over your life. I mean, you get that, right? Like, if you didn't, here's what happened. In March, everything that you expected to do this year ended. Fair? Fair? Uh, you got a vacation plan, it got canceled, right? You were going to go do something, accomplish something, it's over, right? You were going <laughs> to go to school, you <laughs> can't anymore, right? You were going to play sports, those are done, right? Everything that you thought you had control over in a moment's time was taken from you in a way that maybe some of us have never experienced at any other point in our life. And yet, here's what God means to remind us even in those things. You were never in control, you're never in control of your life he always has been it's like this um i i grew up playing a lot of video games uh, i have one younger brother it was a source of great joy and like fellowship as well as contention and fighting. And so we were always kind of playing video games and either that was us sort of enjoying time together or that was us like beating each other with the remotes after we had won or lost said game. It's just part of my experience growing up. Uh, Whitney didn't play any video games and so uh, we had this kind of adjustment period as we got married where I just didn't play any video games and if I did, she was kind of angry with me and then uh, eventually after several years, I learned that it wasn't worth playing the video games. But that was a really hard lesson for me to learn (laughs) Uh, and then we had kids and I realized kind of my scapegoat around that lesson which is that I can teach them how to play video games and be a part of it and then I'm back into the game and they're there with me and it's like parenting instead of playing video games, right? You can keep that one. Uh, so here's, here's how it went with Josiah, our youngest. We have a Wii, uh, which is like this kind of interactive game. And I happen to really enjoy uh, this game called Mario Kart, which is like little race cars. You have a little teeny steering wheel. You play it on the Wii. When he was three years old, here's what I did. I gave him a remote control steering wheel that had no batteries in it. And I put it in his hand, and I stood right behind him with the remote that works, and we played the game. And he believed for every second that he was a really good Mario Kart driver. I mean, and, and into it, right? Moving around, he's, he's now grown to where he actually is, better than me at it, which is uh, neither here nor there. But in this, uh, though he was influencing nothing, and I'm the one controlling the game, he felt like he had a great deal of control. Not only that, several times this is what would happen. He would do something wrong. He wouldn't listen. He would disobey in some way, shape, or form. And I would take said steering wheel away from him. And you know what would happen? He's three years old. You know what would happen, right? Uh, I don't need to reenact it for you. It was uh, violent, ugly noises normally falling onto the floor, a lot of crying and a great deal of panic that the guy on the screen was going to crash now that he didn't have control of a steering wheel that wasn't doing anything to begin with. That's exactly what your life looks like. Here's here's what we do when we try to keep control of our life. We are We are like a little child holding a steering wheel with no batteries thinking that somehow we are the master of our fate until something comes into our life that is so overwhelming that we can't control it. That God moves in such a way to recognize that He is ultimately sovereign in your life. And here's here's what happens. You either... React like David in Psalm 13. It's not my remote. I trust you, Lord. Or you react like the Israelites in Exodus. How could you? What are you doing? How could you possibly be doing this? This doesn't make any sense and I want to be the boss of my life. And here's, here's what God means to tell Habakkuk. Here's what God means to consistently say throughout the Scripture, You and I have never been in control. It's always been about his sovereign hand in your life. And you can either rebel and war against that in futility or you can trust it. Those are your only two options. Because what he's going to do is what he is going to do. Now here's the second thing that comes along with that then that we're meant to learn. God's will for your life does not always or even often reflect your will for your life. God's will for your life frequently will take you places that you don't intend to go, will walk you down journeys that you didn't want to walk down, will lead you places that you didn't expect to be. And it doesn't make him wrong. It makes you, and every single step, more able to trust him with the lordship of your life instead of yourself. That's what he means to show Habakkuk that there was coming an evil people. God was going to raise up through something that... Habakkuk isn't going to understand the people for the sake of destruction to accomplish his will. This is one of the most prevailing and persistent themes in all of Scripture, that God is going to use things that we might look at as wrong, evil, and inconsistent with what we want for the sake of accomplishing his will. You can go all the way back in the book of Genesis. You find uh, Joseph, this Son of Jacob, who has 12 sons, who is the beginning of God kind of multiplying out this family of Abram that he had promised them. He happens to be uh, younger than most of his brothers. He looks at them and goes, I'm going to be the boss. They don't really like it. They sell him into slavery and tell their dad that they've killed him. Well, they tell their dad that he's died. Right? And then they go on years later to find out in time of famine that God has taken their evil plans and raised up Joseph into a place in Egypt where he sits only on Underneath the Pharaoh himself, and Joseph's words to them is what you intended for evil, God used for good. You see it in um, the book of uh, Exodus as it continues on. Joseph dies, years pass, God's people multiply, and here's what happens God, for the sake of delivering his people, hardens the heart of pharaoh and brings about painful and wicked and difficult circumstances for his people before he's going to deliver them out the exodus is one of the most glorious things in the history of the nation of israel and yet before this the people hate moses do you know that Moses comes to them and says, hey, uh, God talked to me in this burning bush, and I'm going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to lead you out. And they go, hurrah, that's really great. You and Aaron go do it. And they go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh goes, no. And not only no, but work harder. You go get your own straw and your own mud. And you make your own bricks, and you make more than what you were making before. And the people go, what's wrong with you, man? I thought you said you had a plan. i just paraphrase, but that's what, it's, that's what it is, Right? doing and it says that God hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that he would show the Egyptians the glory of his name that through the pain of his people he would make known his will and his glory for the sake of his Great name, Perhaps the best example of all of this, you move forward into the book of Acts, and it's going to be recalled in this way, that in Jerusalem, in the holy city of God, God had put together people who were against his Lord and Son, Jesus To do exactly what his will had predestined to occur, that they would crucify him. That in the darkest, worst day in the history of humanity, God was not only in control, but was ordaining this for our sake. Here's here's what God means for Habakkuk and what he means for us that he is sovereign over all things, even the things that seem to us to be so broken. And wrong and confusing and spiraling out of control. And even if God's will for our life looks different than what we would perceive it to be, it should be good news for us. Why is that? Because, because we make poor masters of our fate. A, um, there's this poem. It's a, a famous poem called Invictus Means Latin, it's Latin for unconquerable. It's written by a guy at the end of his life who had overcome some significant odds, had an amputation, and uh, felt like in that it made him unconquerable. And so the poem closes with, it matters not how straight the gate, it matters not how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No, you're not. They're not. And if you are consistently, you make a terrible master and you make a crummy God. It should be remarkably comforting to think that we don't hold the ultimate control of our fate because we are broken and we are fallen and we are shortcoming over and over and over again, and the person that you want to be is not the person you are, amen? That's true for all of us. And so where does Habakkuk find some hope? Where do we find some hope in God saying that circumstantially bad things are coming? I think we're meant to draw a great deal of comfort in the fact that God over and over and over again in the scripture displays His sovereign hand in your life. And so here's here's what you're left with. You and I hold a remote that does virtually nothing. And some of us are clutching so hard, trying to control, trying to affect every twist and turn, every response, and every time something goes wrong, you feel like you're about to crash because you've now lost what you didn't have to begin with. Here's what you need to do. You let go. The Bible over and over and over again is going to confess to us that the, the solution To the human condition, your sin problem, your inability to do what is right and good in your life is only solved through you getting off of the throne of your life and placing your trust, placing your faith, not in your ability to control it, but in God who sent His Son to come and to die that He might take over, that you would submit to Him as Lord And that ought to be a deeply comforting thing. Pray with me. Lord, I I believe you are doing something in our days. Doing something in our lives. And maybe it is wildly different than what we perceive or what we want. I pray that you would bring about in us a trust that is in you and you alone. That we would recognize how small, how finite, how little and insignificant we are in the grand scheme of things and that we would recognize how, how unable we are to affect the outcome of our own lives and that in it, it would be a massive burden off of our shoulders, a great relief for us to stop trying to affect the outcome so much and trust you. Let us be a people like David, your servant, a man after your own heart who said, nevertheless, I will trust you. Help us, Lord. Give us faith in Christ that we would walk trusting him every day, renewed again and again, desiring to walk in the glory of your will for our life. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand sing one more song with us before we close tonight.